The reading this morning is from the book of Acts. It's in two parts, chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and chapter 7, commencing at verse 51. These can be found on page 1096. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people, and the elders of the teachers of the law seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In the second reading, beginning at verse 51 of chapter 7, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet among your ancestors that you did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. 
That's good. All right. Uh, it's good to be in church together. Before we begin to, to uh, get into this passage, and I hope you keep your Bibles open at Acts chapter 6, we're going to hear from one of our parish councillors uh, about Commitment Day, which is next Sunday, and uh, hear their take on uh, committing to the new renewed vision. So would you please welcome up Katie Reed? Thank you. It's a bit of a delayed response this morning here, Katie. <laughs> now, um, a couple of quick questions. Uh, you, you were um, up the front um, last term when we were looking at our work series. This time we're thinking about uh, growing God's church through the gospel. Tell us how you're feeling about this as a renewed vision, especially given that you had a fair bit to do uh, in shaping that vision. I think what's most encouraging about where the vision landed is it's so outward focused and I think that was something that really resonated across all the services at St. Matt's that was just so good to see around just that reminder that church isn't this building and these four walls, it's everyone who's sitting in these seats and not just about this community but all the communities that we're part of and um, that's not just about Sundays, that's every day of the week and just how we can influence those groups um, both in Manly and beyond which is yeah, just a really powerful focus to have. Cool. Now, last week, uh, if you were here, I had a big, heavy um, tile with the word sweat written on it, which is what I'm hoping to bring to the renewed vision. Uh, And next week, there'll be more details about this, but we're going to take photos of as many of you as possible holding maybe not a roof tile, but something like this chalkboard with one or two words that you're thinking of bringing to the renewed vision. So tell us about the word that you've written, Katie. Well, I actually cheated and I wrote two words, (laughs) so I apologize for that up front. Um, But the two words I wrote were city workers, Um, and that's because I really want to bring a focus to this as part of growing God's church. I think corporate Australia isn't only a place where there's so much that can be influenced and where light can be brought in where it's not present, Um, but it's also a place I see so many Christians really coming under active attack and really becoming discouraged. So I think the more we can do to really grow and help support people in that space, um, yeah, the the influence and impact that can have is huge. So city workers are my two words to focus on. City workers, excellent. Uh, Last question for you, Katie. Um, We've we've mentioned over the uh, past weeks that next Sunday we want people to bring their commitment card filled out and signed. There'll be an opportunity to do that in the service next week as well to kind of commit a financial pledge to ministry next year but also to our mission partners like Dave and Crystal Fell. So tell us how you feel about signing one of those little bad boys. I mean, I think the commitment series every year is just, I mean, something Blake and I really enjoy because it is, it's really an act of worship more than anything. And to be able to sit down and have a really intentional just reflection point on everything that we've been blessed with and all the privileges we have and just the money that we've been given that is all God's to really be stewards of. And there's something really powerful in taking a really intentional moment to sit down and reflect on that and really think how you actually want to um, influence and impact other people through that Um, I had the privilege a few years ago going to Congo, and since then, Heal Africa has really been something that's been really close to my heart. Um, And it's something that, I mean, when you go to a place like Congo and you just have that really stark reminder of how different our life is day to day compared to so many other people in the world, and we are blessed with so many things here in Manly. So I think being able to sign something like that is such a small act of just giving thanks back to God for everything that we do have. Thank you for sharing that, Katie. Uh, I'll take this. And would you please all uh, thank Katie as she heads back to her seat. And uh, everyone's job, including me, uh, next week is to think of the words you want to put on a chalkboard and the commitment card card to sign for next year. Uh, I am going to pray 
and then we'll get underway. You'll need Acts chapter 6 open. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, firstly I pray for Katie and I thank you for her and I pray for that baby that was hiding behind the chalkboard there that you would bring that forth into the world safely. And Lord, I pray for us as we consider uh, Commitment Day that you'd help us to be generous and thoughtful and we'd see that as an act of worship as Katie mentioned. And Lord, please, as we consider your words now, speak to us through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I sometimes think um, that if I could just get my act completely together as a person, as a Christian, I will command the respect of everyone. Uh, Not in the sense so I can kind of dominate or manipulate people, but just in the sense of being respected rather than ridiculed. I, I wonder if you've ever thought that. I once worked with this uh, guy who was younger than me, uh, and it's like half the world really, isn't it? Younger than me, and he was the sort of guy who had just seemed to got, he, uh, got his act together quite effortlessly, and you couldn't help but give him kudos, that sort of a guy. He was a good-looking guy, which always helps, uh, a bit of an athlete, he was a, a clubby up at Palm Beach, he used to row the surf boat, uh, he was very disciplined with what he ate, to the point that we used to make fun of his expertly constructed sandwiches at lunchtime. It's like they almost needed architectural drawings. He was starting out in our vocation, but he was like a natural and a real quick learner. And of course, he married a fashion designer (laughs) whose clothing lines were sold in David Jones. And so he always dressed sharp. And he was just nice as well. So you couldn't even hate him for being the complete package. Very annoying. Once uh, we had this um, uh, all-day off-site staff conference... And uh, he and I decided we'd sneak in a quick 40k bike ride beforehand. And I'd been on the bike a little bit and was feeling quite fit. He hadn't been on the bike at all but was up for it. And so we were riding along and I was feeling pretty good. And we got to the bottom of this long 8 kilometer hill. And he looked over to me and he said, look, why don't we just take this hill at our own pace? An excellent idea, I thought, because I was still feeling fresh. He was obviously feeling the pinch. And so we did the hill at our own pace. And I just watched him zoom off (laughs) into the distance. And by the time I got to the top of the eight-kilometre hill breathless, he was there talking to his fashion designer wife on the phone, not even puffing. And he was still so nice about it all, so I could not hate him. He was actually the kind of guy who was impossible not to respect, even though he was 10 years younger than me, because he just seemed to have his whole act together, somewhat effortlessly it seemed to me at least now what if as the church we were like my young friend we had our act together there was no need for royal commissions things of that nature Uh, our senior leaders were warm and erudite in in front of the camera they displayed not only compassion and sincerity but were also kind of really quick-witted and articulate you know what if there were never any divisions in churches or across denominations? Uh, What if all our websites looked amazing? Do you ever think that if as individual Christians and if as the church as a whole, we just got ourselves sorted, we would carry kind of kudos and respect in the public sphere rather than the ridicule that we fear so much? Have you ever wondered that? Because you know that we won't, don't you? It just won't be like that. I mean, we could all be disciplined with what we ate and what we drank, what we said and what we did, and there might wonderfully be no need for royal commissions, and our leaders could all be warm and 
articulate and photogenic and different denominations could just get over their differences and unite or at least put on a united front and we could even all have killer websites which would all be great things to do but they won't stop Christians being objects of scorn or indifference and in other parts of the world violent opposition now the question is what are we to do with all that and that's what we're looking at today from the book of Acts Uh, As uh, Emily said, we're coming near the end of our commitment series, kind of a a time we take out every year. This year we're thinking about our renewed vision of growing God's church um, through the gospel from the first third of Acts, which has really shed light onto our renewed vision here. We've seen from Acts that the gospel, that is the good news about the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that gospel grows the church And we've seen that overall vision has been undergirded by some core values, uh, both St. Matthew's core values and core values in the early church that include, as Emily said, Bible and prayer community. And last week we looked at service in which every member uh, is a servant of Christ. Every Christian has ministry to do among people. And that can sound so rosy and so kind of neat that we might be tempted to think that if we just kind of got it right... If we just did it well, not only will the church grow, but we will be personally respected and admired. And today we're going to see from the life and the death of Stephen, that is just not the case. No guarantees. Of course, the sacrificial love of Jesus. Of course, the, the work of the Holy Spirit within us compel us to be better versions of ourselves, better people than we otherwise would be. But the plain truth is that regardless, there is just a cost in following Jesus. And Christian suffering is a reality check we all need to hear today. We're going to look at Stephen. We're going to see that Stephen really is the package, and yet he still suffers. And we're going to see this from the man. We're going to see this from the message. We're going to see this from the murder in Acts chapter 6 to 8. So have it open. We were introduced to Stephen the man last week. Uh, You remember last week, if you were here, the apostles uh, were faced with a very reasonable but pressing problem of distributing food to needy widows. And and with that problem, they faced the uh, potentially more serious issue of the growth of the gospel being limited or bottlenecked by the apostles' own ability to both look after this reasonable pressing problem and preach the gospel and pray. You can't do it all. And so they appointed a a bunch of spiritually wonderful, mature people to look after the widows. And one of those people was Stephen. Now, what kind of man was he? Well, he was just like my friend, really. A guy who had his act together. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 5 in your Bibles, where he's described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look in verse 8 where he's described as being full of God's power and grace to the point where he performs amazing miracles before the people. I mean, I reckon he would have been a photogenic kind of guy, but for sure he is more than articulate in the face of hostility. And from verse 9 onwards, he outwits his Jewish opponents with wise, spirit-led words. And so he's quite the package. He's got his act together. He's articulate and he's wise and he's gracious and he's powerful and he's erudite. And so, of course, all the people will respond with respect, don't they? Well, they don't. Not at all. 
Uh, in fact, they respond with a smear campaign. Uh, verse 11, have a look. They secretly persuade some rogues to twist Stephen's words. In verse 13, they produce false witnesses, just as they did with Jesus. And these false witnesses say, This fellow Stephen never stops speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law. In other words, he's speaking against the word of God and he's speaking against the house of God. He is disparaging things that in our culture, a tradition we hold dear. It doesn't matter that he's right. doesn't matter that he's a thoroughly decent chap. It doesn't even matter that he is visibly, I mean visually commended by God. Have a look at verse 15. His face is shining like an angel, like Moses' face was when he came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God to get the Ten Commandments. In other words, visibly God is saying, Steve-o is my guy. He's got it right, but it doesn't matter because the simple reality of the situation is that his allegiance to Christ is going to cost him. He is at odds with the prevailing culture and ethos of the day, as are we. When we have some kind of a certainty about life after death, as are we when we really believe there's such things as sin and judgment, as are we when we see everybody as needing salvation that is found in Jesus alone, as are we. Now, we don't have uh, time to go through all the details of Stephen's message that occupies really most of chapter 7. But uh, verse 13 in chapter 6, they say, This fellow, he never stops talking about this holy place. That's the temple. He never stops talking against the law. Have a look again in verse 14. He says, We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place, that's the temple again, and change the customs of Moses. How does his message answer that? It's very... Similar to Jesus' last days, isn't it? Did you notice that? Both Jesus and Stephen performed miracles and outsmart uh, them with their clever speech. Uh, In response, rebel rousers are stirred up, a smear campaign is started, false witnesses are produced who twist Stephen's words, claiming that he speaks against the house of God, against the word of God. How does he answer that? What's his message? Well, In that long speech that follows in chapter 7, Stephen provides a kind of potted history of all the greats of the Old Testament and he shows his opponents that actually none of these Old Testament luminaries, we're talking Abraham, Joseph, Moses, King David, like all the big ones, none of them even had a temple. And have a look, chapter 7, verse 47. He does say, yes, King Solomon eventually built the temple, but in the very next verse, verse 48, God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. In other words, God's presence was never limited to one particular place. I mean, Katie's absolutely right. It's not all about the four walls. God was never imprisoned in the temple. And Stephen is effectively saying to them, listen, if you actually read this Old Testament that you're so fussed about, you would totally get over this obsession with the temple, like enough of it already. And he brings his speech to a conclusion in verse 51 with Moses-like terms. Did you pick up on this? You stiff-necked people. Old Testament prophet-like terms. You've got uncircumcised hearts. I mean, Jesus-like terms, really. He says, your ancestors had the prophets, you persecuted them. Your fathers killed the ones who predicted the coming of Jesus. And then you killed the righteous one, Jesus himself. Great work. Pretty full on, hey? 
You had the prophets, you killed them. You had Jesus, you killed him. You got your Old Testament, but you don't obey it. And so Stephen the man is quite the guy, but he's met with fierce resistance. And his message is well informed and it's articulate and it's compelling. And he meets murder. And it's worth just tracking the irrationality of this response. Uh, unlike in Acts chapter 2, which we looked at in the first week, you remember that um, when Peter goes for the jugular, uh, this was the response of the people. Cut to the heart, they replied, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter's like, Repent and be baptized. And they're like, cool, 3,000 of us will do that today. Quite the opposite here. Let's track the response. Verse 54 of chapter 7. They gnashed their teeth at him. I don't even know how you do it, but it sounds pretty full on, doesn't it? Stephen has a vision of Jesus standing next to God in heaven, and they cover their ears, yell at the top of their voices, rush at him, and then throw stones at him till he dies. I mean, it's irrational. It's, it's violent. It's kind of childish in some ways, but actually it's more demonic than anything. And Stephen dies a Jesus-like death, both praying for the forgiveness of his murderers and then committing his spirit unto heaven. Now, friends, if you are a Christian here today and you ever think that if we just got our act together a little so that we're both affable in our person and articulate in our profession, in what we say, that we will gain a hearing and a respect in our society, the story of Stephen reminds us there are no such guarantees. Stephen is the man. I mean, he's the package. He's gracious and servant-hearted and filled with the Spirit and the power of God, and he meets fierce resistance. His message is well-informed and well-argued, and he's murdered. So there is a reality check that we all must make today. At the very least lowest common denominator there is a genuine possibility that following christ will cost us in profound and personal ways stephen is the package but he suffers and so might we now we uh, need to make sense of stephen's story but before we do that it's worth following this story just a little further into acts chapter 8 because when we move into Acts chapter 8, we discover that Stephen's suffering gives way to gospel growth. You remember last week in Acts 6 where Stephen's service gave way to gospel growth? You remember last week the, the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly? Well, today in Acts chapter 8, Stephen's suffering gives way to gospel growth. And it really is a great kind of turnaround story. Now, you think uh, this week we've just seen the U.S. elect its 45th president, and uh, Trump's win was like a, certainly a surprise. And we've got a number of Americans in our congregation. I'm, I'm really interested to hear their take on it. But if you're looking for a great turnaround story, it's hard to go past the 16th president. Now, who is the 16th president? Who knows? Yeah, you were here before, Bruce. That doesn't count. It was indeed Abraham Lincoln, 16th president. Did you know this? He was born in a log cabin, lost his mum at age nine, lost the love of his life at 22 years of age. He had to educate himself. He had a nervous breakdown, two failed businesses. He lost when he first ran for Congress. He lost twice when he ran for the Senate. He lost as a vice presidential candidate, quite a resume. 
But then he was elected the 16th president and he led the country through the Civil War. I mean, probably the most important president ever. And then reconciled the country and won re-election and preserved the Union and abolished slavery and strengthened the federal government and modernised the economy. Unfortunately, he got shot. But up until then, right, it was a remarkable turnaround, wasn't it? Not just for Lincoln himself, but for the United States under his leadership. And it's a remarkable turnaround what happens after Stephen is martyred and murdered. Have a look in the first few verses of Acts chapter 8. The story transitions to Saul, who would later become Paul, who we're going to be looking at next week. But on the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the whole church. You see, not just Stephen, but the whole church. Not just the leader, the whole church. And everyone apart from the apostles were scattered into the Judean and Sumerian countryside. Judean and Sumerian countryside, that rings a bell, doesn't it? What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, just before he went up to heaven? Didn't he say these words? You, fellas, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and oh, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the ends of the earth sounds like a fair clip away, doesn't it? And by the close of chapter 7, how far had the disciples got through this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth itinerary? Well, they got stuck in Jerusalem. Hadn't made it very far, had they? They hadn't even got it out to their brothers in the Judean countryside that surrounded Jerusalem. They hadn't got it to their cousins in the north of Samaria. And this might have been happening a couple of months or even a couple of years after Jesus went up to heaven. So that it had time. So what we're actually supposed to see is that the suffering and the consequent persecution is the thing that got the spread of the gospel back on track. Have a look in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul is going from house to house, dragging the Christians out into jail. But in chapter 8, verse 4, the Christians who were scattered, they just huddled and turned inwardly. Of course not. They proclaimed the message, the word, wherever they went. And so it's actually the murder of Stephen that recovers the mission from stalling in Jerusalem. Stephen's suffering gives way to gospel growth into Judea and Samaria at the very least. And so there is a reality check that we need to make. Following Jesus is no guarantee of ease. In fact, it's almost a guarantee of suffering. But suffering doesn't kill the church. It rather gives way to other kinds of gospel growth. Now, friends, how do we make sense of Stephen's story? How do we connect his story to ours? I've got four suggestions or ideas that might help us. The first is that in our society, we often underread human suffering in general. What I mean is that uh, technology has meant that we do so much less physically in terms of our work, so our bodies break down less. Medicine means that for a lot of ailments, there are fixes if not quick fixes. Our commitment to leisure and recreation and busyness means that we don't often stop to think about the very deep issues in life and the general societal uncertainty about what lies beyond means we don't want to talk about death until suffering and hardship and trouble is thrust upon us rudely and abruptly and then we're almost surprised it's happened to us at all. As if to say, this isn't meant to happen. 
we're going to struggle massively as humans. I mean, I'm not even talking about Christians. Massively as humans, if we don't accept that difficulty and hardship and trouble is part and parcel of human existence, right? You don't need to be Christian to experience suffering. You just need to be human. But if you are a Christian, then we need to expect human suffering rather than be surprised by it and then start blaming God for it. All I'm saying is that in our society as a whole, every human being suffers and we tend to underread this and are underprepared for it. That's the first thing. Second thing is it's easy for us to overread the opposition and Christian persecution that we face here in Australia. With things like the same-sex marriage movement and moves to remove scripture from school and what I think is actually an anti-religious slant in the Herald and uh, on you know, 702 radio and maybe in your Facebook feed, we can think that everyone is against Christians and everyone hates Christians. But this is not true. Like A survey was recently done. 88% of Australians apparently are glad to have a local church in their neighbourhood. 88%. Now, I don't know what's happened with the other 12. They probably watch the cricket, right? And they're so depressed, they can't even take the phone call when they're doing the survey. 88%. It tells us there is a hostile and vocal minority who are virulently opposed to the Christian faith, but most people are indifferent to it. And therein lies our real challenge and great opportunity. On the whole, it's not hostility, it's apathy that we're up against. But that gives us a great opportunity to show the wonderful difference that Jesus makes to our life. Now let me say, this is not the case in other countries. And it is true that brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering awful persecution just for the fact that they are Christian in other parts of the world. Whereas here I think we tend to underread human suffering, but to overread Christian persecution that we endure. And that is something to think about. Uh, Third thing, uh, even though we need to prepare ourselves for the fact that both human suffering and Christian persecution will happen in our lives, the way to prepare is to accept the cost rather than arrange our lives, our whole lives for comfort in the hope that we can avoid that cost. Okay, accept the cost, not arrange for comfort. Now, I don't know if you've noticed on TV how good furniture looks in furniture commercials. Have you noticed that? It looks wonderful. And it's not just the furniture, right, but the whole package. You know, there's not a skerrick of clutter anywhere in the house. There's uh, usually a, a tall, skinny lady in a formal dress with very long stilettos on that I'm always worried are going to, like, puncture a hole in the cushion of the couch. She's there as well. And uh, really, I think what they're saying is you buy this sofa, man. You buy this grand lifestyle that's luxurious and and desirable, and uncluttered, and comfortable. I mean, sometimes it's more interesting than the show you're watching, isn't it? My uh, personal favourite are the King furniture lounges, you know, the King ones where you can kind of rearrange them in all different sort of sorts for every situation. I mean, this, uh, this would be my dream living room, right? It's all cool and grey and uncluttered and minimal. I'm not crazy about those two people being in my living room, like if they were there... <laughs> I'm like, what you doing? Get out of here. Have a look at this one. Another King Furniture. This guy's saying to the lady, hey, how are you doing? And she's like, actually, I just want to read my book. So I'm going to do that alone. And I'm going to rearrange my sofa so I can do that comfortably. 
I finished reading my book, now I want to go to bed, so I'm just going to rearrange my sofa so that it's a bed. And you can do it all with this furniture, you see. You can, you can arrange everything, all of life, for maximum comfort. Now, friends, that actually does not work in life in general if suffering is a part of life. And it doesn't work in the Christian life in particular if we're going to accept the reality that there will be a cost, a personal cost, in following Jesus. And I think almost, I think this is right, cost and comfort are almost opposite to each other. So we need to accept the cost, not to arrange everything for comfort. We just make sure that your faith never comes up. It's never an issue. So let's get down to kind of real ground-level practicalities. Tomorrow when you go to work or um, you're waiting at the bus stop with the kids or you're having coffees with friends, whatever it might be, tomorrow morning, the topic of the weekend is going to come up. It just will. It's the most obvious thing. And if you arrange for comfort, you lament the cricket or you talk about dinner on Saturday or leisure or chores, but you don't talk about church. But if you accept the cost, then you just mention church or you talk about your faith, you just put it out there and you see what happens. And maybe people will show interest, maybe they'll ask more, maybe they'll think nothing more of it, maybe they'll silently judge you. There's a chance they might openly mock you, I think it's probably a small chance, but almost certainly they'll be watching you to see whether your walk matches your talk, your profession of faith. But if you accept the cost, rather than arranging your life for comfort, then at least there'll be that talk. I mean, there might be costs like um, you lose social status, or you lose respect, or even social exclusion. That would have happened to some of us. It might be a financial cost, either because of your generosity, and even something like filling out a commitment day card, there's a cost there. Or you might lose a promotion, or you might lose a customer, or, uh, or a client, because in some way your faith informs your work practices, you might lose opportunities. You might lose friendships. You might become estranged from family members. There might be tension in your relationships. They're all possibilities. And it is, I think, at this point worth remembering what Jesus said about whatever you lose for the sake of Jesus and his gospel you will gain 30, 60, or 100-fold. So it's worth hearing that, but actually, at the end of the day, we just need to accept that there's a cost uh, rather than just arranging things so that our lives are completely comfortable. And the last thing that the story of Stephen suggests to us is that our suffering and our persecution does not stop God in his tracks. Stephen is murdered. The message spreads into Judea and Samaria. We might suffer, The time is coming where gospel ministers might even end up in chains. But God's word is not chained. And he will continue to grow his church through his gospel. I'm convinced in manly, but I know for sure beyond. So as we finish up, uh, it's certainly true that we can underread human suffering, overread Christian persecution, but both exist. So let's just accept that. Let's look for Christian growth in us, then through us, all around us, whenever that happens. And when we're tempted to think that if we just got our act together a little bit more, then that would gain us respect and and hearing, then let us remember Stephen, who really was the package that just ain't those guarantees. 
The guarantee is that there's a cost, cost of following Jesus, and there's the additional guarantee that regardless, God will grow his church, even with that cost, even with our suffering. And so the question is, will we accept that in faith and in hope, or will we draw back from that in fear and comfort? Now it's time for us to pray. So join with me in praying. I think some of us are fearful people, and I certainly am. And if you think you're a fearful person who could do with prayer, just for, the, for boldness, courage, whatever it is, then I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Everyone's going to have their eyes closed, so no one will know. But my hand will be raised because I'm afraid. And then we'll pray for one another. Let's pray. A moment of quiet, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I do uh, thank you for the story of Stephen Package, who still suffered. Let his example be uh, prophetic for us as we recognize that even if we do everything right, by following you, costs are involved. We need to accept both human suffering, Lord, and Christian persecution as part of the deal and accept that in faith and hope rather than drawing back from that in fear and in comfort. For those of us who are particularly afraid, includes me, give us boldness and courage in the face of that fear and help us to look for gospel growth in us and then through us and then all around us to your glory and the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.